Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate one pound a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash project RS and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. Together, we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash project RS. Now here's the episode. Roll up, roll up listeners. It's Monday. It's religious studies project time. We are coming to you, not live, but pre-recorded from the Wash Bar in Edinburgh. My name is Christopher Cotter and I'm joined as ever... By David Robertson, and I'm also this week's interviewer. Yes. This is a recording quite recently. I think it was only three weeks ago at the Open University's uh, Contemporary Religion in Historical Perspective conference, organised by myself. And um, it's a conversation with Richard Irvine and Theodorus Kriakides, um, who are working on a research project at the Open University, um, which is part of the bigger understanding and belief project. Um, but here we talk about magical thinking in the modern world. So I will pass straight over and explain more to you there. I'm joining you again from Milton Keynes, where I'm at the uh, Contemporary Religion in Historical Perspective conference. And uh, today I'm joined by Richard Irvine and Theo Kriakides. Um, who have a project um, called Magical Thinking in Context and Situation of Unbelief, which is part of the bigger Understanding Unbelief project. Um, today, they're going to be talking about um, magical thinking in uh, contemporary modern society with quote marks on it. So um, welcome to the project. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, Richard, perhaps you could uh, tell us um, about the project that you're working on. I mean, the, the basic set of questions we're asking, it, it comes out of reflections on secularization thesis. The, the general idea being that as societies become more apparently rationalized, more secularized, as you see, you know, fewer people directly affiliating with religious groups, surely... The follow-on from this would be that there's less space in society for practices that we might term magic, um, for thinking about the world as an enchanted place. But in actual fact, what we, we see in, in our different field sites is that even with people who would define themselves as non-believers, who, who, would, who would see themselves as outside of religious structures and indeed rejecting forms of belief, there still seems to be this um, place in their life for reflecting on what is unknowable and trying to and, and, and trying to engage with it in different ways. And so really what we want to do is say that rather than secularization squeezing magic out of contemporary life, out of modern life, that in fact secularization seems to open up new spaces that magic um, magic can, can grow within. 
Yeah, just to add that if you take the notion of modernity, it was uh, Max Weber who kind of predicted the disenchantment of modernity. It was kind of like a, it was a prophecy mm-hmm. uh, that was done. When, when did he say that? 1920s? Yeah, I mean, so he's, so he's speaking in, in science and vocation that's just after the First World War. So. Yeah. Uh, so obviously he's taking some criticism, but to an extent, I guess somebody can make the argument that modernity is yeah. disenchanted with uh, magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's our starting point to yeah. see to to what extent disenchantment can allow for yeah. magical phenomena to manifest. Because I mean, what I was talking about this this morning with science of vocation, why I mentioned that is in that lecture, what Weber does is mm. he says. I mean, he's 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 addressing this to students who obviously they think they're very smart, you know. And he's saying, "Well, how you think you're smart? How much do you actually know? Because if you think about natives in, in tribes elsewhere in the world, they have a great store of their knowledge." And so he says, "You know, you board a streetcar, you don't think you don't know how it how it propels itself unless you're a physicist. You buy things without really any notion of why sometimes you can get less or more for the money." Whereas in many societies, in fact, people have an understanding of where their food comes from. They have an understanding of what. So he's saying, in fact, in modern, technologically advanced, specialized societies, there's there's actually far less mm-hmm. of a far less of a, a portion of the total knowledge that we have. And so in that, he's saying, yes, we are becoming more rationalized. We are, but does that necessarily mean that we are entering a state of more Knowing, which so so in a sense, the secularization thesis, as Weber sets it up, I think allows for this mm-hmm. space of of enchantment, enchantment. Yeah. rather than disenchantment, because what you have there is that whole space of unknowing about mm-hmm. everything that isn't your very particular job within the division of labor. Mm-hmm. But there was another model of modernity, which actually might be slightly earlier, but it was certainly in currency around the same time. Um, you know, the whole James Fraser model in which modernity, you know, building on evolutionary models and Darwinism, social Darwinism, mm-hmm. basically, of that we moved from uh, superstition and magic to religion to science. Mm-hmm. And so that modernity was, you know, as you said, it was a prediction, um, but it was a prediction in that model which does replace kind of magical thinking completely. Um, so Weber's model of modernity is, is definitely not the only version mm, of it that's going sure. around at yeah. the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's interesting about Fraser's work is that, uh, you know, it, it perseveres. He's taken so much critique for being, you know, a culture evolutionist or a primitivist uh, because he presents this... Um, linear trajectory which societies have to be followed in order to be legitimized as modern right uh so he's he's kind of i think anthropologists have the knee-jerk reaction of kind of denouncing a a evolutionary model but at the same time he's a well-known um you know people talk about him people who are not anthropologists know about fraser's work and Mm -hmm. uh, in an ironic twist that trajectory that he kind of presented as evolutionary that work that corpus of work kind of substantiates magical belief in modernity as well people read in my opinion the way that um, magical traditions kind of 
become reiterating what mm. he has to do through Fraser's work in a way. Mm-hmm. So would you say when when people are buying and reading the Golden Bow because you yes. can still get it in like yes. you know those those editions that are like you know two quid or something. So yeah. when people are buying, are, are they looking for are they looking for magic rather than is that I mean what what is it they're looking for in there and is it that disenchanted I suppose? Yeah, I think the the book has a certain allure. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, I don't think what people are going to read, but the fact that. You know, mm. take the back cover has to do with magic. Or assume, mm. you know, well, it? it's very readable. It's very accessible, even yeah. to non-academics. You know, it does that um, sweeping grand yeah. theory that you know, and it it boils down to quite simple. There's one kind of central narrative, and, and he was a tremendous, tremendous publicist. I think mm. contemporary academics could learn a lot from Absolutely. him, get, getting their ideas into mass marketplace. So. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, um, you could make the argument. That uh, Fraser's work is a form of magical thinking in itself, in that he connects all these disparate elements and links them mm. together into a grand mm. narrative. You know, it's that sort of synthetic knowledge that we see in a lot of uh, schools of occultism, for instance. But when you guys are talking about, um, you know, magic, magical thinking, in these kind of terms, um, break down how you're using that for us. You already mentioned kind of ideas of the ineffable um, earlier on. I don't think you used the term ineffable, but you said something similar. But there's also kind of practical aspects as well. So, um, yeah, break down how you're using ideas of, of magic. So I think the way we kind of use the term magical thinking, it doesn't necessarily have to do with people subscribing to existing magical, magical traditions or practices. Uh, it also has to do with the way by which they kind of develop their own worldviews and philosophies that have the underlying assumption of magical efficacy. Uh, so magical efficacy can be, you know, uh, it can adopt char- characteristics that of contagious efficacy or uh, automatic efficacy. Uh, you know what Fraser called sympathetic and con- contagious magic. So, yeah, once again, it's not necessarily the people following mm. uh, explicit magical traditions, yeah, yeah, but also yeah. developing their own uh, ways of understanding and dwelling in the world, which kind of adopt those those mm. uh, characteristics that uh, anthropologists char- uh, associate with magical traditions in in a more implicit uh, manner. I mean, one, one of the things we talked about in, in terms of how we were defining magic in the project and you can you can shoot this down if you think I'm being too too specific <laughs> about it, but I think it's important to think about, especially in what, what we're talking about as, as as a modern context. It's important to think about individual practices that people people adopt in order to make sense, um, in order to make sense of the world around them, in order to to in certain ways gain gain some kind of mode of control over the world around them. Um, so I think that emphasis that that is classic in anthropo- in most anthropological theory that what we're talking about here are certainly social practices which exist within a social space, but which are the domain of individuals take it to uh, individual action rather than necessarily religious ritual which which brings which which brings social groups together mm-hmm. um, but I think that that's quite important in a way for talking about the modern world because in fact as has been repeatedly pointed out we're seeing more and more individualization more and more fragmentation in how people you know 
the whole designation of people talking about themselves as spiritual but not religious, these kind of things, it's often about that idea that people are being more idiosyncratic, more personal in how they mm-hmm. in, in, in how they engage with mm-hmm. with the world and 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 what is potentially unknowable. Um, so, but I mean, the kinds of things I, I think something I mentioned this morning, which I think is a really interesting case in point because it's a contested one. But um, recently, Sally LePage um, uh, launching an attack on water companies in in the UK for um, in her t- practicing magic because he, he, she says you know she she contacted these water companies and they said well yes we're we're divining we're 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 going out with dowsing rods some of our some people who work for us are going out with divining rods and they're looking for they're looking for water and that's that's part of the battery of things that 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 are used here. now what's interesting there is is immediately she leaps to this idea that um, she leaps to this idea that this is magic because it's something which doesn't is something which doesn't necessarily fit with our hypothetical deductive model of science. So to be present, you know, this is the thing which we should have been should have been left behind once mm-hmm. we worked out proper scientific ways of finding water. But in fact, what what they're what what when I talk to people in in Orkney, some of whom do rely on divining in order to find where to to bore for water, but this works. There's a practical knowledge that people have. Of the landscape and where to and where to find water, so they're not necessarily. And I think this is an important point. They're not necessarily thinking of it or describing it as magic, but certainly they would reject the idea that simply because something cannot be, simply because something doesn't fit with what is tested and known according to parameters of science, they're not going to reject it just because of that. They're not going to say, oh, it doesn't fit with the peer-reviewed literature. Mm. Well, I'm, mm. I'm, not going to, I'm not going to divine for water anymore. In fact, it's like, this is practical knowledge of the, of the landscape, um, and that's, that's what they go with. Um, it seems to me, though, that you've got two different ideas of magic in play there, and, and I think this is, this is common across the board. So it's not it's not meant as a criticism of you, but rather for the, the listener in terms of how we are using the term mm. discursively. So on the one hand, you said that it was something that wasn't part of a recognised religious tradition, but was for it wasn't about religious communities, but it was used by the individual. Mm. But then we shifted to talking about it as something which wasn't that was a practice that that would had was thought of as having efficacy, but not through appeals to science. Mm. So those are two different quite different things are they not mm, yeah so that's, uh, that's a good question I mean the, the the one of the reasons that the project is interesting to me as well is that people kind of have lost touch of what magic is uh, because if you go to initial ethnographic studies like magic is not just a belief in the supernatural mm. or a belief in uh, you know, gods or spiritual beings. Magic is also like a system of practices which have actual ways of reproducing societal structures mm-hmm. and kinship. Um, and I think, as uh, Richard said, like uh, modernity kind of led to the fragmentation of the individual and in a way kind of led to the fragmentation of magic as well. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about this later as well, that uh, magic in my field side has a certain Polysemy, like people understand yeah, yeah, yeah. what magic is in different ways. 
So to use Richard's language from this morning today, um, this, this is such an archaeology of magic. Mm -hmm. uh, there was magic and it's been like, uh, now it's kind of hidden under layers of modernity, mm -hmm. layers of um, science. Uh, and uh, so in a way, we're kind of conducting an archaeology of how people relocate this sort of like traces of magical thinking in the everyday. Yeah. I mean, and in terms of in terms of whether or not, I mean, this is this is always going to be kind of the problem, both methodological and theoretically, because mm. when you're talking about something like magic, um, you're you're talking about something which is simultaneously being the the the, the locus of thousands and thousands of papers mm -hmm. of theorization, and also something which is in the popular imagination. I think um, Graham Jones in his which which you've you've Better put a lot, Theo, a bit in been working with. But Graham Jones in his recent book, um, on what's what's the title of the Magic's Reason. Magic's Reason. I mean, that's that's very interesting because Graham Jones did his PhD with what I suppose a lot of people would 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 associate with. Magic. He did his PhD on stage magic, but he's gone through this on the archaeology. It's, it's used what you're using. He's gone through this to look at well, what what does this idea of magic and performance say about the the longer strands of magic that are available in 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 european and american culture um mm -hmm. rather than this being a different thing so so the, the basic problem here is that we are talking about something which is everyday language mm -hmm. and can't necessarily be labeled be labeled mm -hmm. um purely from the point of view of sociological or, or other theories which is so much the case i think in in religious studies yes. because you know we we don't have ownership we don't have ownership over these words, and yeah. you know you can't necessarily say. So sometimes that does mean that you know you're involved in in shifting. You know, so the with with the Sally LePage example, what's interesting is she's using magic in that particular way. Mm. She's using magic in we would say the Frasarian way of this is what society should have evolved beyond. It's yeah. backwards. Yeah. 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 Now, when you have people who are simultaneously saying. I'm an unbeliever. I, you know, I've, I've gone beyond. You know, I, I don't, I don't hold with religion. I don't hold with people telling me what to believe. Now, from a Frisarian point of view, right? They've they've stepped into the next level. Mm -hmm. They're beyond religion. But what's what's curious there, in from from the point of view of these conflicting views of magic, is but hang on, they've stepped into that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have left behind. In fact, what it means is that they're rejecting. Religious authority structures, but they may also reject authority structures which are rationalist authority structures. So there's, there's, and, and in that context, then the idea, so you've got this conflict of an idea of magic as a failed form of science, which is, is, is one model coming into conflict with the idea of magic as a practical way of engaging with a world which is full of unknowable things. Mm. And it's full of unknowable because of the nature of a society where it's so specialized to go back to this point it's so specialized that we know less and less about the whole store of knowledge because we only really have proper understanding of the tiny bits of the division of labor that we've got if 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 even that uh, personally I, I don't use the word magic when i do field work a lot so i'm not going to ask people do you believe yeah. Or practice magic because, uh, as Richard said, it, it kind of ended up being a signifier of irrationality and mm -hmm. 
backwardness. So I might use um, I might use the word Maya, which is like the local uh, term in the Cypriot dialect for magic. Uh, but what's interesting is like once something's labeled as magic, it's labeled as irrational. Um, it kind of excluded from the normative order of things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to case to take the dowsing example, it is something that people did without questioning. Like uh, the fact that they went around, <laughs> maybe they were questioning in, your, in their heads, but the fact that this practice was being reproduced is inter- interesting. The fact that they were going around divining for water and that they were, this was a, a practice that had, uh, you know, attributes of magical thinking, but which was nevertheless naturalized into the normative order of things. Hmm. I mean, one just in a conversation we were having earlier um, with, with one of the other participants at the conference, um, which I think is a very good, I, it struck me as a great example of magical thinking. Um, we were talking about how there's lots of debates about in court, when you make your oath, you know, what, what, what of an unbeliever? Should an unbeliever be allowed to, and this is contested in many places, should an unbeliever be allowed to not make an oath on the Bible? How do they make an oath? But what's interesting in a lot of these debates is not it, it, it focuses on whether the Bible should be there or not, but the actual question of the oath mm-hmm. isn't necessarily called yes. into question. That yeah. Somehow that performative act mm-hmm. of making an oath has a transformative effect on the truthful quality of the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Now, it's quite striking that that's still something which is at the heart of it's at the heart of our ideas of what constitutes the rule of law now ultimately these are ideas of of, of magical thinking which which um go which i think in, in some respects do go un, un, unexamined and I, I mean our task isn't our task is uh, well certainly i don't i don't see our task as being to in some way debunk these or to to suggest but but rather to 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 give to give lie to the idea that a modern, secularized, rationalized—you can add in all kinds of 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 of, uh, of words. This leaves these things behind. I mean, it's sort of, um, yeah. It's. I mean, I suppose I've come right back to killing killing the the ghost of Fraser again. But you know, that wasn't my intention when I started this sentence. That's so long okay. ago. He's already dead. <laughs> <laughs> Just to go back to something Theo was saying there. I mean, a, a couple of times recently, I've been thinking about. And this came up during my fieldwork in in um, uh, conspiracy mm. and UFO communities. Mm. Um, is the idea of sometimes these things are in the subjunctive mode? Okay, mm. so they're, um, and I think this is particularly pertinent when we talk about things like dowsing, and mm. um, but also alternative therapies. Mm-hmm. One thing I found was that there was almost always uh, there was very common for people to get into New Age or UFO or conspiracy communities through alternative healthcare, essentially because they had chronic illness of one type or another. Hmm. And so the when the main the scientific mainstream treatments didn't work, they were prepared to try anything. Mm-hmm. So they would try them in the subjunctive mode to see if they work. Hmm. And then when one of them works for whatever reason, that then is a confirmation that oh some of these things do work even though science says it's not true. And this leads them to then embrace a, a number of other possible things mm. in the subjunctive mode. Um, and I think that dowsing is like that. The, the council is probably thinking, well, I don't know if it works or not, but it might work. 
Mm. You know, if it has given us results, then fine. I'm not going to think too much about, you know, mm. whether it's scientific or not. If and, and you find the same thing in like acupuncture treatment in mm. the NHS. They're prepared to pay for acupuncture or like mm -hmm. sometimes aromatherapy and things. And they're like, well, it doesn't matter if it's only working because it's a placebo. Mm. If it's working, it's working. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, so subjectivity kind of demands maintaining a certain propensity to to the potential to mm. something that yeah. you don't to the not to the unknowable. Yeah, the, the the rational justification for it is secondary mm. to the practical applications mm -hmm. and. The function. Yeah, there's this famous phrase I, I, I like from uh, Jean Fabrisada's work. I know that jokes are still, uh, so yeah, that magic is a joke, but still, you know, it's that tension mm -hmm. that the unbeliever kind of um, oscillates mm -hmm. with uh, that kind of magical thinking yeah. emerges from. I know that magic is a joke or it doesn't exist, but still, uh, and she kind of she borrows this from uh, psychoanalyst uh, Manoni, Octave Manoni, who kind of deals with uh, subjectivity and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in, in in terms of magical thinking as well. So that was yeah, I I think that was like a, a phrase that was kind of foundational in the theoretical questions that we mm. that we tackle. I mean, I think that I think the magic eye is is a very Good example. I mean, because mm -hmm. the way that you've talked about the magic, uh, but sorry, the way you talked about the evil eye, mm. it's a good example of that because you talk about the way that in certain modes this can be used seriously. And, and yeah. So the evil eye in Cyprus, on certain occasions, it can be used as decoration on people's shoes or t-shirts or mm. earrings or uh, houses in general. But under certain occasions, it it is granted. Uh, much more magical quality by the people using it. So under occasions of uncertainty or stress, um, or you know, even in the everyday, I talk to people and they tell me, "I don't, I don't really believe in the evil eye. I don't, I don't acknowledge that it's in my house." But sometimes when I'm having a bad day, if I'm having bad thoughts, I might, I might just think about it. I might look at it, hmm. um, and which I think goes back to what you were saying. You know, it's that. I know this is a joke, yeah. but still, I mean that that I think there's there's a certain sense of what there's a certain sense of what unbelief would involve, which should end after the first part of that. I know it's a joke, full stop. Yeah, but that's not what we see in the messiness of everyday life. It's mm -hmm. I know, but that doesn't mean in the subjective mode. You know, that doesn't mean that there are not there are not other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the subjunctive mode, there may be other contexts in which yeah. I might want this to, to you know, or I at least cannot be sure that there is not. That, so it's it's better to do it just mm. in, just in case. I don't know if you're familiar with Martin Stringer's work, um, but he he talks about this came kind up of, in the discussion yeah, today. Situ yeah. Situational belief and exactly mm -hmm. the same sort yeah. of idea where. Um, and and this actually relates to the this sort of subjunctive the example mm. I gave before. You know, in if you ask this person, do you believe in in the chi flowing around the body, or they'd say no. But when it came down to if I try this, it might mm. Um, mm. I might be able to put that aside for long enough that it works. Mm. Or you know, um, people don't tend to believe in in prophecy or speaking mm. to the dead. But if their husband or 
our loved one has just died, mm. they might have an overwhelming desire to speak yeah. to them, and and in which case they enter a different mode of of expressing belief. I mean, I find, I, I was saying this in the discussion earlier. One of the things I find in, interesting about Stringer's work is that you have particularly this situation that he he discusses in relation to the dead and practices to to do with communication with the dead and mm-hmm. things, even among people who would who had not necessarily seen themselves as believers. And that's very interesting in the context of, and one of the reasons why I chose Orkney to do this fieldwork is that you have a landscape here which is very much archaeologically defined by the presence of these Neolithic tombs. That, that It's recognised as being a landscape of the dead. And indeed, for many people, the, the cemeteries even though the kirks themselves may may have been made into private houses or just falling down the cemeteries retain that kind of of space and that to me is something that's quite interesting because in terms because in essence you can have you can have a personal stance in relation to you know I I don't believe that it is possible to communicate with the dead for example you can have that as a personal stance but you're still living in a landscape where reminders of the dead are, are all around you and how I think one of the issues at stake here is how do you simultaneously engage with personal stance which says this is all you know I know I know this is all nonsense say and also a recognition that there is an entire world which is around you which is built on the idea that there is some continuity mm-hmm. of the dead that there is some Mm-hmm. possibility you know that there is a continuing involvement of, of the dead in social life mm-hmm. and part of what is interesting then in terms of the practices that people adopt is how they how they might find a way of dealing with that unknowability of the landscape which surrounds them um mm-hmm. so i think the idea we, we, we were talking about this earlier so the idea that you can adopt this stance in relation to objects, which is not purely materialistic, mm-hmm. or in relation to a landscape, which is not purely materialistic, it doesn't seem to be that that is completely incompatible with people nevertheless expressing their personal set of beliefs as materialistic mm-hmm. set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, you know, it's a stance in relation to these things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I like... And, and we're we're getting close to time. Uh, but one of the things I like most about your project is the two case studies that you're comparing in Orkney and Cyprus. And on, you know, at first glance, quite different. One of them's familiar to me. One of them's completely alien. Um, tell me a little bit about how you see these two case studies working together. What are the potential kind of tensions and possible similarities that you that you see there that you can tease out in the comparison well they're both islands uh i think the two veins that we identified thus far is uh do you want to talk about anti-authoritarianism yeah okay i do unknowability yeah i mean i think that one of the we were we we weren't aware of this i mean part of this is part of anthropology and ethnography mm-hmm. in general. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen until you go into the field. You, you, there is a, a leap of faith in, in anthropology. And so it was only really once we started comparing notes that we realized that one of the things which was quite central in both of these cases was that people who spoke about themselves as 
unbelievers were doing so as an anti-authoritarian stance, that this was a way of saying, you know, that, that, that a way of saying that people shouldn't be allowed to define what you believe in, that people shouldn't tell you what to think as though, as though you don't ken yourself. Um, and that that was very striking in, in, in the Orcanian example, that most people spoke about the idea that, in essence, religion was part of a power structure, which was a power structure mm. with, associated with, with those who are, who are property owners, that it was associated with, you know, that it was something that they didn't feel they should be that they should be subject to, um, and that which which has very long lines in in histories of dissent in the Church of Scotland too, which reject that idea of patronage in the church. By the by, but it was interesting then when I started comparing notes with Theo, mm-hmm. but we had that we realised actually, especially among and correct me if I'm wrong, especially among mainly of the young people mm-hmm. who would describe themselves as atheists or, or non-believers. It was that sense of an anti-clericalism, an, anti, an, a, a, an anti-authoritarian stance. That was, yeah, a sort of knee-jerk reaction against um, dogmatic depictions of, mm. of, of religion in Cyprus. In Cyprus, like the, the rise of the Republic kind of parallels to the rise of the Cypriot Church. Our first president was a clergyman, uh, and so on. So it's a, it's a church and state kind of dovetail together. Mm-hmm. And I think that ended up in, in this, in this mm-hmm. uh, gesture yeah. of kind of distancing yourself from religious yeah. authority. But just to segue into to, to you talking about unknowability, one of the crucial things then, if you've identified that when we're talking about unbelief, we're not necessarily talking about an idea of rationalism, which says the world is now knowable. Mm-hmm. It's still if if it's saying what 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 I'm rejecting is being told what to believe here. It still leaves open this this possibility that there is Something an unknowability else. an unknowability in in society. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good segue. So I, I I relate with your research as well. I really like I find the question of the conspiratorial subject very interesting because it kind of denotes um you know ufo culture is usually associated with counterculture in in, in, yes. in the u.s yeah. and it's a i think it's likewise people who distance themselves from governmental Absolutely. and religious authority only to try to and put the pieces together themselves mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. usually uh following a conspiracy theory or like formulating a conspiracy theory is like a practice of connecting the dots in a way and then i think that's what we're trying to figure out with uh, unbelievers as well on both occasions. So once you make that uh, swift dismissal of of normative understandings of religion, uh, where do you go from there? And it's usually people kind of plunging into that gray area of religious beliefs and uh, mm. social norms and kind of devising their own worldviews and mm. perspectives. Um, Which I, th- I think in a way brings us full circle because if your starting point in talking about modernity mm. and is is that in essence as individuals there's so much that we that we don't know we might assume that somebody else knows it or we hope that somebody knows how to how to make planes work or you know we hope that there's somebody who understands all these things but on an individual level it's left to us to to piece those things to piece those things together and to try and work out what those yeah. chains of causality are yeah. and 
I think there's like a greater point to be made about, ontological point to be made about unknowability, about the unknowability of relations, like social relations cannot be nev- can never be complete. Like our understanding of the no- of the world can never be complete. And there's, I think there's two or three ethnographies I read on witchcraft that they start, the ethnographer says, I've never seen a witch. Mm. There's like, there's, on the first page, uh, I think Fabric Sada does it, or uh, Niels Bubant, is that his surname? Mm. On the empty seashore. Like, that's the starting line. I've never seen a witch. Uh, the locals have never seen a witch. But nevertheless, because of this, people's awareness mm. of their fragmented understanding of the world. They can't yeah. entertain that possibility yeah. of, of the witch. And I, I, I mean, I think that's a core thing and one of our, our, our theoretical influences in a way in Evan Spritchard's classic study of witchcraft yeah. in, in which he debunks the idea that may have been common at the time. These are people with a primitive mindset who don't understand the, don't understand the rules of cause and effect. He says, no, they think through exactly the same mindset, mindset as us. You know, they, if, if somebody, dies while sleeping under the granary and you ask why that is and, and you ask well the explanation is witchcraft but that doesn't mean that they dismiss the fact that termites ate through the legs and that's why the granary fell down there's a question of but why did termites eat through the legs of the granary at that point when that person was sleeping under what and she says now this is the same logic that we operate on it's just that we dismiss why questions as legitimate questions so we have all kinds of means of explaining these 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 how questions um, of explaining physical causality, but the problem of the of the why, which is is, is generally dismissed as a legitimate as a legitimate question to ask, mm. but it remains as a problem, and that remains a problem that people that people grapple with in the in their everyday lives, and they do so in ways that I think sometimes can be referred to as as magical. Mm-hmm. It does bring us full circle, and um, we are not immune from answering why questions here at the Religious <laughs> Studies Project, and the why of how we have to stop now is that we've run out of time. I want to thank you both for taking part, and hopefully we can have you back on another day to continue the conversation. Sure. Hope so. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, David. It's fantastic to hear uh, some research that's happening within that broader project. Do check out the interview from a few weeks ago that I did with Lois Lee. And it's great to hear of the the comparative aspect um, being done there um, because our our central categories um, sometimes take on quite different forms in different contexts. Um, And on talking about comparative... um, (laughs) Uh, and collaborative research. Um, the the BASR, who are one of our headline sponsors, uh, are having a joint conference um, this year with the Irish Society for the Academic Study of Religions, and we're having this conference um, from the third to the fifth of September at Queen's University in Belfast, um, Northern Ireland, being that ambiguous sort of. Um, quote, shared, unquote, territory of the, the British and Irish associations. Um, this is the first collaboration, formal collaboration between these two societies, although we've been quite uh, working quite closely together for a number of years. In fact, Brian Bocking, um, mm-hmm. who was at the University 
College Cork. Um, was a former president of the BASR, and he was quite instrumental in setting up the Irish Society. And indeed, their constitutions modelled on on the uh, British Association's constitution. Have we ever interviewed Brian Bucking? We have not. No, we've interviewed James Capello, who's the current president, and Jenny Butler, Butler, who's the uh, secretary. And um, uh, Owen Amahony has served on their, uh, mm-hmm. their board as well. Um, the conference themes on uh, its borders and boundaries at religion on the periphery. And we've got um, Gladys Gagnon, um of Queen's University Belfast giving one of the keynote lectures. Uh, she's been on the RSP before speaking about the emerging church movement. And also Naomi Goldenberg of the University of Ottawa. She was on the RSP, one of her very first interviews, speaking about religion as vestigial states. Indeed. Um, so um, that call for papers is open until the end of April. Um, we would love to see you there, and we will, of course, be covering the conference. Uh, yes, we will, and I would fully expect an interview with Naomi Goldenberg. Um, tried to make that work when we were in Bonn last year, but... We're having too much fun. Yeah, we were just too busy. Um but we'll also be recording our uh, Christmas special there again. Um, and then that we're thinking that'll be the last one at BASR for a year or two, and then we're going to go for EASR the following year and IHR in 2020. Fantastic. If, we still, uh, if we're still this going. Still, <laughs> we'll still be going. It'll be great. Um, so that's a few months ahead in the future, but do come back next week to hear an interview that I recorded at the beginning of January with Tim Stacey on um, his uh, book that's just recently been published. Um, the the, the interview is called Myth, Solidarity and Post-Liberalism. Um, but we'll tell you a bit more about that next week. Very intriguing. Um, however, this week, the only other thing we've got to say is... Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals